0: Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader-Supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So this week we're talking with Zakia Dalila Harris about her debut novel, The Other Black Girl, which is difficult to describe all at once, but the kind of conversation that we had with her touches on how deftly the book captures kind of the racial politics of the modern office, and especially the kind of unique perspective from inside the publishing industry. Because it's, as we'll get into in the conversation, it features a protagonist who is the only Black person in the editorial department of a major publishing house. So lots of kind of insider gossip and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, Zakiya's book is really deft in terms of portraying those sort of small interactions, microaggressions, and the ways in which a Black woman essentially has to go into an office every day. And it's also a thriller, we should say. Yes. It's a thriller yeah. and a horror story. And it's a great book. And I had a lot of fun talking to Zakiya about it.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that you're kind of teasing, Medea, is I I really enjoyed the mix of genres and the connections that I could at least see between the book and authors that I really love, but we don't talk about as much these days, like Nella Larson and George Schuyler. We get into it in the conversation. And yeah, let's get to it. Let's do it. We're excited to have Zakia Dalila Harris on the line with us today. Zakia worked in the editorial department of Knopf Doubleday for almost three years before she left the publishing world to write her debut novel, The Other Black Girl, which was released this June from Simon & Schuster. Zakia holds an MFA in creative writing from The New School, and her essays and criticism have appeared in Guernica and The Rumpus. The Other Black Girl is a sharp and often funny novel that centers large contemporary questions about the politics of race as it encounters diversity, inclusivity, and representation through the unique lens of working in the modern publishing industry. The novel opens from the perspective of Nella Rogers, an editorial assistant at the prestigious publishing house Wagner Books. As the only Black girl in the editorial department, Nella has to navigate the familiar landmines of race in the modern workplace, microaggressions from her white coworkers, diversity initiatives that no one takes seriously, and the daily exhaustion of navigating the elite cultural spaces she's managed to gain access to, but which definitely are not built nor maintained for her. So one can imagine the relief Nella feels when a new Black editorial assistant, Hazel May McCall, is hired by the publisher. But after Nella raises concerns about the racist stereotypes that inflect the manuscript of one of the publisher's most famous white male authors, caricatures that her coworkers refuse to acknowledge and which Nella quite rightly can't let pass, she finds herself suddenly thrown under the bus by this would be ally, Hazel, who also seems to be scooping up all of the attention and possibilities for promotion from Nella's bosses and the rest of the Wagner staff. Then anonymous notes start appearing, telling Nella to leave the publisher if she knows what's good for her. Is this Hazel's doing? Another co-worker's? Is it all in Nella's head? Or is it part of a much more sinister and far-reaching plot to keep Nella and other Black women who want to challenge and change the status quo fixed in complacency and complicity? bouncing between mystery, satire and an indictment of the modern publishing industry, The Other Black Girl keeps us guessing right up to its haunting end and we're thrilled to have Zakia here with us to break it all down. Welcome to the show Zakia.
2: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: We should say for listeners that there are a lot of twists in the book and so if they don't want to know them, we'll let you know maybe if you need to skip ahead but You may also just have to resign yourself. Just read the book before you listen to this. Whatever. Who cares? They can figure it out. So, Zaki, I think the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about was your entrance into the literary world and your sort of initial foray into literature as a career and literature and publishing kind of as a a job. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. So I feel like it's important to start with that. My dad is a professor, a journalism professor in Connecticut, and he's also a writer. He had a column up until last year. And having that influence in my life was pretty big because I think I just saw so many avenues for writing. He would always say to me, you know, it's really important to love what you do if you can. And also, like, writing is wonderful. It takes you a lot of places. And so that was always in the back of my mind. And I mean, I studied English literature in undergrad and I minored in creative writing and really enjoyed getting to read books that in high school, I wasn't assigned to read books that were edgier and covered topics that I never really thought about before. And then once I left, graduated from undergrad, I ended up doing my MFA in nonfiction at the new school immediately. Like I remember sitting (laughs) in a Panera in my hometown in Connecticut being like, I can't live at home (laughs) after I graduate from college. I have to do something else. And I looked up MFA programs. The new schools was the one that I hadn't missed the deadline for. And I applied. I got waitlisted for fiction though, which was the thing that I'd always been writing for most of my life. And nonfiction I got in for. And I'd started writing nonfiction in undergrad as well. So I got really into that. And it was really fun, though, because at first I was a little apprehensive. But I really think the nonfiction side helps me a lot in terms of just making me a better writer, connecting me with people that I wouldn't otherwise have met. And that was really my first time I, like, dove into Baldwin in such a, like, very detailed kind of way. And it was also 2016. And so, like, the city, Brooklyn, the country was protesting. Everyone was protesting a lot of different things, but mostly the murder of unarmed Black people at the hands of the police. And so, yeah, it's just a lot of things that happened at once for me. It just pulled me more and more into that, the literary space, I guess. And then, After that, (laughs) sorry, this is a long (laughs) journey, but after finishing my MFA in nonfiction, I had a professor say to me, you know, writing book reviews is a great way to just like get into this world even more. And I started writing book reviews for The Rumpus and I loved it. It was so much fun. I think that that's a skill that every writer should have, uh, at least try to do, because it really gets you to engage with other people's work and how to talk about other people's work and your own work too. And then at the same time, while I was doing those book reviews, another professor of mine at the New School, uh, <laughs> all the benefits of having an MFA, getting an MFA are these connections, honestly, even though it's so expensive. One of my professors mentioned to me that she knew someone in publishing. And she thought I'd be a good fit in editorial. And that was something I'd loved the idea of doing for years. Hadn't been able to get an interview or an internship or anything, but she knew someone, who knew someone, you know, one of those, those chains. And that also, I was able to get an informational interview from that. And so what I was doing editorial when I was working in publishing, I was trying to make sure that I was really also focusing on my creative work too, which was difficult, but really, for me, ultimately fulfilling. And then there came a point where I had to decide.
0: (laughs) Before we jump into the book itself, I would love to hear about your influences. I mean, writerly influences. So I kept thinking, for example, of Nella Larson, whose book, Passing, I think, I mean, Kendra and like, okay, so like some of those names, I was like, that's there. But also the simultaneous attraction or affinity between two women, but also one that hinges almost immediately into competition seems to like pop for me there. But also as we get into the later parts of the book, it seems to me like George Schuyler's Black Empire in moments, also, of course, Black No More in terms of like it's kind of the capitalism and racial politics, Ishmael Reed and Paul Beatty, right, all of these things like kind of are swirling around. So I would love to just hear, you know, who would you say kind of shaped your style and form as references in The Other Black Girl?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. Form for sure, Sula by Toni Morrison. I read a couple years Oh before. yeah,
0: okay, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. before writing this book and just the ways in which, I mean, time, passage of time, different perspectives, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And of course, female friendship at the core, uh, very complicated female friendship. So that was for sure one passing. Absolutely. It's funny, I, I just started rereading it a few months ago because I started reading it right before I started writing this book, like a couple months before, I want to say. And I didn't realize how much it influenced me until I just did this reread. It was like, wow, those tensions between those two women in these spaces are so similar to what I was trying to do with Nella and Hazel. Even yeah. though those women are, are able to pass as white women, and Nella and Hazel obviously are not, they're still mm-hmm. passing in their own way using code switching and yeah. certain buzzwords and phrases that people use, that we use in, in real life. And so, so that was definitely an influence. And also that social terror, like how like such a small snub or such a small look can be so terrifying for sure. Really big influence. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think what else, all of those names you mentioned for sure. I mean, I haven't read all of them, but I'm definitely familiar with their work. And I think, For me, what I really wanted to convey was this the sense really of like (laughs) what black culture looks like, what blackness looks like right now, Mm. and all of the ways that we talk about it. And so I mean, I was also really channeling for me TV shows and movies that I love really gave me my form as well. Like, I mean, Issa Rae for sure had a big impact on me, those banter conversations. And of course horror movies i could go on
0: but yeah get out definitely seems to be like a reference point and almost actually i think is directly referenced in the novel at least once
2: yes i believe so it's terrible that i don't remember now (laughs) like i've gone through so many drafts (laughs) of the book but yeah and night of the living dead invasion of the body snatchers just love it i love genre
1: I mean, this might be a sort of a big or difficult question, but you mentioned wanting to explore how Blackness is discussed. And I think one of the things that is really impressive about this book is you really nail how it's discussed in predominantly white liberal spaces. And <laughs> it's partly, you know, of course that you, you have experience with it. You, when you worked at Knopf, that was exactly, I presume exactly what you were exposed to. But what do you think about when you think about those kinds of discussions and how they where they come from? I mean, I think, you know, I have my guesses as to like how they are formed and where they come from in terms of like buzzwords and various other like vocabulary that people pick up and then eagerly sort of exchange with each other. Mm-hmm. But the difference between discussions like the kind that you depict in this book among these liberal sort of white coworkers and what might feel like a more substantive discussion and sort of you envision differences between the two and how you think about that?
2: That's a really good question. I mean, I think for me, what it came down to while writing this book is I really was interested in the ways in which Blackness is commodified, both by white people and the people in the book at Wagner Books, but also by Black people and what that means in terms of like the public versus the private and what we show or what we feel like we want to signal versus like what's actually going on. And so, I mean, with Wagner Books, I think especially because it's a publishing house, it was really fun and easy to play with the ways in which language works, because you're right, like, that's a lot of it is the ways in which we talk to one another. And in a, a world of like Wagner Books, where every word has meaning, those codes of like, who is the audience for? Or like, will people actually read this? Those things seem really harmless, perhaps to people in that space, but they actually are like dog whistles. They're commenting on something that if you were to poke at that deeper and ask, well, what does that mean? Someone could easily say, oh, well, it's just, it's all subjective, like publishing is subjective, right? And it's like, I feel like publishing because of the kind of industry it is, where it really is kind of seeming like it is producing really innocuous and really important, pure things. But actually, in a lot of ways, it's a capitalist industry. It's definitely a capitalist industry. And so I think that that really sets it up to be kind of this easy, like, it's just publishing, it doesn't matter, like, it's fine. But actually, like, all of these things do matter, and they influence what people are reading. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, which is such a good question. But I think the more that we talk about the way we talk about these things, the better, at least the better I think we will be for it instead of like, again, dancing around this coded language.
0: So as you're talking about this, so there's the kind of artistic veneer of publishing which is the same, you know, I had a background in magazine publishing, you know, book publishing is slightly different, but kind of they're, you know, sisters, not cousins. Mm -hmm. And there's a way in which when you have any kind of difference that circulates as a commodity, as a value, as a value added specifically. So for example, if you're gay in a predominantly straight space, if you're black in a predominantly white space, you, on the one hand, accrete this, real annoyance at having to explain things to people constantly and fight through all the microaggressions that you detail in the book. And with really wonderful humor, by the way, which is a survival (laughs) mechanism I also recognize. Um, (laughs) But then there's also this weird way in which when another person that is like that, and this is exactly what happens in the novel comes in, it becomes, oh my God, also a relief. And oh God, that's also competition. Because even if I didn't want to be the sensitivity reader, even if I didn't want to be the person that was coaching my, you know, straight white male boss through like, what is Pride Month? What should we do for Pride Month? That, that inspires a kind of weird competition where there should be affinity and solidarity. And totally. a huge part of the book is, I don't want to give away the ending just yet, because like, Hazel should be You should be suspicious about her, but that dynamic is not unique. And it certainly, in some ways, I wonder, doesn't have to be there. So is it possible to break out of that kind of capitalist loop that turns all those on the margins into enemies when they might be comrades?
2: Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think about this a lot. And (laughs) I think that when I was writing that dynamic, just to say when I was writing that, I felt I felt like I've had that experience. I haven't been a Hazel, but I know where that like immediate, like, oh no, now I need to constantly like be on it all the time. Because I think that's such a real thing, especially now I have a lot of anxiety personally. And I think that anybody who does will automatically overthink everything in a way that you would, I don't know, maybe a lot of people do not. But I mean, I think in order to break out of that for me, and maybe this is just too simple to say, and maybe this is idealistic, but I think that we just need to have more of us, more diversity, more Black people, more gay people, more LGBT, more people of color, just numerous. Because the problem is with Nella, of course, like you said so beautifully, she's compared, before Hazel comes, she's compared to every other Black person under the sun. She's expected to speak for every Black person under the sun. But then when Hazel comes, it's like, She's compared to Hazel. So Nella can never exist on her own and as an individual. And I truly don't think until it's the norm to have however many people, I don't want to say numbers because quotas also freak me out, but (laughs) I think when you have just more people in different places like that, in different spaces, in different ranks, I think that's really important too. It's not just entry level, it is at the top. That's when you have an environment where everyone feels like they can speak up, they can complain, they can have, you know, XYZ, all of those things, because then they're not going to constantly feel this pressure of being compared to or expected to be the sensitivity reader or being compared to this other Black person who does agree to be the sensitivity reader, all of those other things.
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Zakia Dalila Harris, author of The Other Black Girl, We'll return to that conversation in a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have DeVarian L. Baldwin back with us in the studio today. DeVarian is the author, most recently, of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. And he's here to give us this week's book recommendation. So, DeVarian, what book are you
3: recommending? Well, it might be an oldie, but a goodie. But especially in these times that we're talking about a racial reckoning and we're thinking about reimagining our world differently, and we're also trying to laugh and have pleasure. My pleasure and thought provoking book remains Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man from 1952. I teach a class just on this book alone every couple of years, and I find something new all the time. But the power of it for me is that it's dated in some ways in terms of it's still the invisible man and it's, it's a man's perspective in a certain kind of way. Sure, but sure. But sure. the, the ways in which his, just the ballsiness of this guy and talk about manhood, right? I guess the courage or the, <laughs> the, of this guy to say, okay, I'm going to write America's Iliad or Odyssey. And not only that, I'm going to use the black experience to write America's Odyssey. Talking about the writer Homer, right? And on top of that, I'm going to do it primarily through satire and irony. And so for me, that in itself, just the courage and the audacity for this guy in 1952 America to say this, I'm going to use the black experience that people still aren't sold on seeing as legitimate or valid. I mean, let's go to any state house. Let's go talk about CRT right now. So for him in 1952, in the height of Jim Crow America, to say, I'm going to write this novel and I'm gonna experiment with literary form. And I'm also going to question and play with archival evidence to tell this story. The story opens up with the protagonist, who's never named, being haunted by a story that's told to him by his grandfather, where he says, son, you think everything's fine, but we are behind enemy lines. And the biggest mistake that I ever could have made was I put down my gun. And if that doesn't speak to the present, We thought that everything was good, that we were in a post-racial America, and then all of a sudden we got folks storming the Capitol building. Like, that grandfather's words haunted the protagonist throughout the novel, and it still haunts me today.
0: Yeah. I mean, that book, you're absolutely right that it is worth every listener rereading it, even if you had to read it for school years ago, or you, you think maybe you already have read it because you've heard that title a million times. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is absolutely true. And my experience of every time that I've reread it, I find something different and see a different way in which I can understand the present. Because, you know, with that book does so beautifully also is break down the institutions, right? Which is what we're so much more aware of today and how even the people that were once outsiders or the marginalized can be re-inscripted inside of majoritarian institutions and hegemonic institutions. But let me ask you, when was the first time that you read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man? I was a junior in high school in AP English. So what did it mean to you in AP English? Was it merely just a book that you're
3: like, I know I'm going to have to write an essay about this? I had just read the autobiography of Malcolm X the year before, which changed my life. Oh, and, all right, and, yeah. I was, I was recommended by my teacher to say, you got to read this book. Well, the funny thing about it is like, you know, wow, probably 35 years later, woo, uh, is that <laughs> um, the book works on many levels. You can just read it as a book about race in America and it's a good story. But then as I sit with my students and I have them read like Du Bois's notion of double consciousness and second sight.
0: For listeners from the souls of black folk. Yeah, yeah, from
3: souls of black folk. So this idea that what does it mean to to see yourself through the eyes of other people being black? And so that your, your sense of yourself comes from the white world. And so from that then, because you are constructed by the world outside of you, you know them better than they know themselves, because basically you become a repository of all their anxieties and fears. So the very notion of the Negro or the Black is not about Black people. It's about being this projection of white fear, white anxiety, white desire. And so once you come to that, you know white people better than they know themselves. And so to see Ralph Ellison talk about these big, heady issues through the simple reference to a a, a man with one eye or somebody winking or someone being blind or somebody talking from their mind's eye. In these wonderful kind of folktale narrative styles or talking about a Liberty Paints factory where they make the whitest white. If it's white the whitest paint, paint yeah. it's the whitest white. We make this paint exclusively for for government buildings. And then there's a moment where the protagonist is looking and he's like, wait a minute. So I take these 13 black dots of dope. Right. I.e. making you hazy, sending you into a false conscious altered state. To see this paint as white when actually it's gray, meaning a combination of black and white together, the integrated world. But we see it as white because the dope, the 13 dots, the 13 million or 12 million black people, they are the power behind it that make you see the world in a hazy altered state. So things like that through narrative form, telling these big heady ideas about race and about power and about gender, just powerful, powerful stuff. And then on top of that, just so so you people listening can understand that with all the limits of the book, then to discover that there was a expunged chapter that was based on the main female figure in the book, Mary Rambo, that didn't even make it to the novel. And then on top of that, there's another expunged chapter on a black gay professor at the college called Dr. Woodridge that never makes the novel. So to add these two other elements, and it just adds even a greater complexity to the stuff that we receive in a printed form.
0: All right. So can you give us the name and title one more
3: time? Sure. This is Ralph Ellison, and it's called The Invisible Man, and it was published in 1952. Thank you so much. We've been
0: speaking with Professor DeVarian Baldwin, author most recently of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Thanks so much for joining us again, DeVarian. Thank you. You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Zakiya Dalila Harris, author of The Other Black Girl.
1: You know, um, there's a moment in the book when Nella's friend points out that you know Hazel has a small gathering in her house, and um, it's sort of a pivotal moment in the book when Nella is really trying to get down to what is actually going on. And Malika, her fr- Nella's friend, who accompanies her to this gathering, has, I think, this. It's almost a throwaway line, but I, but I found it to be actually like pretty profound. Which is, she says. You know, all these girls talk about is industry, industry this, industry that, and to be at the top of this kind of field or that field. And I, I had found, and and that really struck me because nobody else in the book, no other character in the book, had mentioned, "Hey, should we be do- <laughs> should we be doing this? Should we be sort of trying to get to the top in this kind of capacity, right, in this kind of way?" So I do think you you kind of slide that in there in, in, a, in a kind of a um, sly fashion because it, it does, I think, suddenly make you question the ethics that are driving some of that competition that's, that's present in the book and some of the, some of the tension that exists between these women.
2: Thank you. I mean, yeah, I, I think those are questions I had with myself of like, why am I doing this? Like, is this worth it? Um, and how much a lot of those conversations, I think, and publishing again, like the industry, I mean, I think they really dominate in an interesting way where it blurs the line between the professional and the kind of social. It's all it's all just mixed. Like work-life balance is just topsy-turvy.
1: So part of the central things in the book, and again, we won't reveal what, what it is, allows Nella... The uh, and and Hazel and some of the other Black women in, in this novel um, an opportunity to move through the world in an easier way. There is a huge, huge trade, <laughs> um, and again, we won't. We sort of. I, I don't want to give away exactly how this this occurs and what the trade is, um, but uh, essentially they're given. They're given an opportunity, if we want to call it an opportunity, to um, to make it easier for themselves emotionally, daily, to be just be black women in the world, not just in in the publishing world, not just but just black women in the world who see the news, who <laughs> you know just exist, um, and part of the central conflict here, aside from from the, the sort of uh, in, uh, competitiveness um, and the relationship between these women, is what do you do with that kind of opportunity? Do you take that temptation or do you resist it? And I found that to be, you know, really made, I mean, one, triggering, but two, you know, such a big question to grapple with. I was wondering Again, and I, you know, I don't want to give away how how it ends and the kinds of decisions that these women that these women make. But how do you think about that temptation? Do you fantasize it about about it sometimes personally? And if you were given it, <laughs> in some ways, like what what do you think
2: you would do? Yeah, you I know, know, it's really
1: big. It's really big. No, so I'm sorry for n- it,
2: but no, don't apologize. I think about this also all the time. So I mean. When I was writing this, well, when I was revising this book, it was last year. It was one or two months into the protests and I was very tired. I was very, very tired. And I revisited certain scenes. I mean, it took me a long time to feel ready to get back into it, honestly, after selling it, the book in February, and then the three months and or however many months that passed between that and the protests, um, but... That scene in the bathroom, I'll just say, I ended up revising very heavily <laughs> because of how I was feeling emotionally. Because a lot, of, a lot of that time last summer was me wondering like, not what's the point, but like, where is this gonna, what's this going to do? Like, we still have so many disparities, so many obvious, terrible things happening. And on the other side, Positive things happening. I mean, just now, Juneteenth is now a holiday, right? And we have that, but then we also have all these other, th- there's just so many contradictions, and that feeling of being let down and disappointed is so real. And a feeling gaslit, too, I think, a feeling gaslit by this country, honestly, and by a lot of times white liberals, as we see in Wagner books, who people who might think that they are helping, um, but really aren't or other kinds of microaggressions. So this is my long way of saying, I mean, I think about it. (laughs) I like to think that I wouldn't because I do know a lot of, I mean, and I believe Nella says this in the book, but like a lot of the kind of having to sift through all of the noise is what makes me who I am. Um, And I know that I come from a long line of Black people who have had it far harder than I have. And they have still persevered. And I'm still here to to chat with you today. So, so I don't think I would, but it definitely is tempting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that seems to be like the sort of like the, the devil's temptation to be like, it can be easier if you do this particular thing. Totally.
2: it It won't be as difficult. Yeah. Creatively too, like to have that output Just, like, I mean, I don't know if it would just be like that. Like, I think you'd have to have another thing that would help make you be more creative, too. But (laughs) I think that, yeah, it's so appealing.
0: (laughs) I'm wondering if you think that, given all the changes that we've seen in the past year, right? Like, one way of talking about this is, well, we're talking about it more now, right? But I always have this question about, especially when you look at, like, the long arc of history, right? Like, progress is slow, and oftentimes I get a suspicion that talking about things... I mean, and look, like, we're on the radio. This is all we're doing. We're literally just talking, right? But that talking about things is sometimes a substitute or a sidestep for actual progress. And so one of... And I think that sometimes there can also be a palliative effect to actions that can seem like they're producing real and systemic change, but themselves are, uh, the system's really tricky. In other words, that's, that's what I'm really trying to say, I guess it's wily, you know, it it changes shape. Um, It kind of inculcates and then like it gives and then takes away. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm wondering in, in some ways, like how you see the publishing industry which is a huge cultural arbiter, responding to this moment. Like on the one hand, I'm thinking off the top of my head, we have something like Roxane Gay's eponymous Mm -hmm. new imprint at Grove Atlantic, right? That on the one hand, I wanna celebrate that as publishing taking it seriously, publishing looking at the problem of underrepresented voices and and putting actual money, real things behind it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's like, well, Roxanne Gay is a a huge name, right? So that's kind of safe in some ways. I'm never going to say that Roxanne Gay herself is safe. I want to be very clear. But that's kind of safe in some ways. And also she's already a huge cultural gatekeeper to kind of use that term. I'm just interested in kind of where you think we're headed. Like, are we seeing real tectonic shifts that we need even if it's not as fast as we want? Or to kind of tease a little bit without giving away the brilliant ending to your book. Is it just a game of smoke and mirrors and moving things around on the checkerboard?
2: Yeah. I mean, it really depends on what time of day you asked me how I feel about this <laughs> yes. because I, it's hard not to have hope, right? Like I feel like you have to, to write, to create, to try to inspire change. So I do think There are steps being taken that seem to be going in the right direction. Although not really that surprised by what was happening last summer. I mean, before Roxanne Gay, that news was... I remember when that came in, it was like, oh, that's amazing. And, And I remember last year of, I mean... I, I can't even remember. Of course, Lisa Lucas is now at Pantheon, I believe, and at KDPG, which is where I, where I w- worked, of course. And so many amazing names. And I do think this is a good start. I think this is a really good start. But yeah, I do think the fact that there are these a lot of these names, these really talented people who have been put in these positions, they are they are safe in a way, like you say, um, especially when you think about publishing in the sense that. I mean, the gatekeeping is huge. I had a hard time getting into it until someone vouched for me and, you know, informal vouch. But uh, having that MFA degree is what got me through the door. And that's not something everyone can afford. That's not a, something everyone should be able to afford to get into this space that I really, frankly, working at an uh, editorial assistant job or really any entry level job, you really just have to know how to talk to people and love reading. Like I think everything else you can you can be trained to do. And I think that what needs to happen is exactly that where people feel like they want to actually lift up people who are starting in entry-level positions and really showing them the ropes. I I think that don't want to throw shade at the Columbia Publishing program. I think that's great, but like It's another form of gatekeeping, and it's a way for people to use the excuse of like, well, if you don't have any experience, and it's like, well, how do you get experience? It's the chicken and the egg, right? So I I think that, yes, it's great, but um, really what needs to happen is we need to try to hire people who are outsiders, quote unquote, using air quotes, um, to the publishing industry who are hungry and ready to work and enjoy reading and also try to retain people like this who are starting out because the big part of the book is how to keep Black people in these spaces slash how to actually provide them with the resources. And this book actually is, but this is what not to do, I think, in a lot of ways of what not to do and how not to treat your one employee of color or one employee of XYZ.
1: I wanted to ask you, um, how did you think about the villain in this book? Because, you know, so we were talking about your influences and, and the horror genre, and, you know, that's clearly in here. And I think you pull off something a little bit tricky here. Thank and, you. <laughs> yeah, so how did you think about who the villain is or what the villain is in this in this book?
2: Yeah, I wanted... When I started writing this, I had a sense at the very beginning of what would be off about certain people in this book. I'm trying not to give it away. So I knew uh, what would be off. I also knew that I knew who would be behind it. But I also didn't want it to be too obvious because I think that there is a common narrative, which... can I give a spoiler here? We'll just say spoiler alert. Um, yeah, spoiler alert, listener.
1: If you don't want to know what it is, skip ahead uh, 15 seconds.
2: Thank you. Um, I didn't want it to just be an evil white man at the top. Mm-hmm. I think that is boring. It's realistic, but it's boring. And <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't want that to be the 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 bad person in the book. Um, and so that's why, of course, I, I brought in um, who I did as the person who is also a part of it. Um, and I wanted to make the reasons complicated because people are complicated. We have lots of different reasons for doing terrible things um, or the right thing that we think we're doing is the right thing. And so, so yeah, I, I wanted to, to really make the reader have to feel for this person too, which I, I'm not sure I haven't heard that from everyone, but I, I wanted her to be human and show why that thinking, where that thinking came from. Because I'm, I'm a big, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a really big horror fan, suspense thriller. I love that reveal, figuring out who's, who's behind this or who's behind that. Um, and I also feel really let down when it doesn't feel satisfying um, mm-hmm. by the end of the book. And so I was hoping I'm hoping that 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 is satisfying for the reader, that it's not this black and white kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I would say it's a very complicated sort of web of villainy, maybe instead of of the usual sort of bad one, bad white guy, though, as you say, completely realistic and extremely familiar to probably all of us. Mm -hmm. And
0: it also, what I just love about the ending, again, a bit of a spoiler alert, is that... It really leaves us with a haunting and complicated question about the choice that any marginalized person, but specifically a Black woman in publishing, has to make for herself, for her career, and then for the people whom she both feels for and whom she's always everywhere purported to represent. So it's, and I think that it's like, there's a knee jerk reaction to be kind of like, oh, she shouldn't have done that. I can't believe that. But it's like, if you were in that same position, it's like, like, that's the haunting question that I think you leave us with and which Dea was alluding to earlier.
2: Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and that's to the ending, to that point. I mean, I get a lot of questions about it, <laughs> a lot of people are into it. A lot of people aren't into it. I know my dad was personally devastated when Nella slash me, as he says um, all the time, uh, when it happens. And yeah, but I I really think I wanted, I know, I wanted readers to feel haunted. I wanted to not let anyone off the hook, black, white, anyone, because I think that there are a lot of different conversations we can have about how we could have made this end differently. Uh, is there a way we could have made this end differently? Or does really the entire institution of publishing and maybe capitalism have to be completely dismantled and put <laughs> back together again?
0: Yeah. All right. Let's end on that. I love that as an ending note. Love that. Uh, that we need to dismantle publishing and the capitalist industry that supports it.
2: And it starts right now. <laughs> it starts right now, right here. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much. We've been speaking to Zakia Dalila Harris, author of The Other Black Girl. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much to you both. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.
3: Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please... Rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the
2: word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Bladen.